0: Those who hold power, who haven't done their own internal work to really understand and grapple with their belief systems or, if you want, the demons that we carry, spread a kind of toxicity throughout the organization. And so there's a responsibility for those who are in the most powerful positions within an organization, within a community, within a country, to do their work First.
1: Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, I produce this podcast, and we are coming to you today with episode 229 of the Meta Hour with Jerry Colonna. This is the second time Jerry's been on the podcast. He's close friends with Sharon, and today's conversation is centered around his new book entitled Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. Jerry is a teacher, an author. He's also known as a CEO whisperer, which is a great term. He himself is the CEO and co-founder of the executive coaching firm, Reboot.io. And he's been using his experiences as a CEO, as an investor, a journalist, a college professor, and a coach to teach leadership with a certain quality of humanity, resilience, and equanimity for over 20 years now. So it's a delight to have Jerry back on the podcast. And this is a very heartful conversation all about the different aspects of Jerry's new book, the inspiration for which grew out of the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing protests centered around Black Lives Matter and Jerry's response to a lot of deep personal inquiry and, as Jerry calls it, being a first responder to suffering. So it's a wonderful inspiring conversation and if you'd like to check out jerry's first appearance on the meta hour that's episode 102 which is out there in the archives wherever you listen to your podcasts and before we get to today's episode a short announcement we've just launched a brand new website for sharon it still lives at the same place sharon salzburg.com And there you can find a whole world of all things Sharon, including every episode of the podcast, lots of old articles and press, as well as Sharon's many years as an on-being columnist. You can find all those articles there as well. We've got an online store with different offerings, guided meditations, gift certificates, courses, And lastly, the full catalog of Sharon's 13 different books that she's released. So take some time and go swim around over there, SharonSalzberg.com. And let's get to today's episode, Sharon Salzberg and Jerry Colonna. Hello,
2: my friend, and welcome back to the podcast.
0: Hello, my friend. Mm. It's great to be back with you. It's always great to be with you. Where are you recording from and how are you? I'm recording from my home in Longmont, Colorado. Um, as you know, we live on a 40-acre farm with three horses and two cats and many <laughs> owls. And uh, I'm well. I feel settled and I feel I feel good. Despite, say, the troubled nature of the world, I feel good. Yeah,
2: yeah. The last time you were a guest on this podcast was in 2019, which feels like several worlds ago. So it's delightful to have you back. And, of course, I've been, uh, in the meantime, not only do we see each other as friends, but um, I've been on your wonderful podcast, Reboot. um, Mm -hmm. And the occasion we're celebrating today is that you have a new book that's just come out called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. So fantastic congratulations to you.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I said this in the acknowledgments, this book would not exist without your guidance and teaching, Sharon. Mm. So thank you for, oh, my God, what is it, 18 years of friendship and teaching that um, in so many ways pours itself in whatever work I do in the
2: world. So well, thank you. Now I'm just yeah. going to sit here and cry. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, Oh no, and you will too. <laughs> it's like Oprah, Jerry Springer. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll breathe. Um, you might want to check out Jerry's first appearance on this podcast, which was episode 102, where we spoke in depth about how Jerry came to this path and his mm-hmm. personal journey. So let's jump right into belonging, which is such a beautiful word. Sometimes when I talk about how they say the Buddha said everybody wants to be happy, that word happy Mm. is so tricky for a lot of people and implies something superficial or happy-go-lucky. And so I say, no, it's more like belonging. So tell me how you came to this topic and how
0: it became so central to your work. Well, the... I think I came at it first from one angle, not dissimilar to you, which was, um, I do see the work I do in the world as kind of being a first responder to suffering. Mm. And um, I don't know, there's a teacher in this call right now who may have helped me Mm. see myself as a responder to suffering. Um, And... You know, in a sense, I I like your framing. I like your notion about happy or happiness being an interesting and maybe even challenging objective. Mm -hmm. Um, I often think of the words equanimity or contentment um, and the ability to be content in the face of suffering, um, which is an extraordinary ability. And then when you sort of break it down, you often think of the word belonging because if we have a profound and systemic sense of belonging then we feel loved and then we feel safe Now more specifically how did I come to that it, are, are, are you are you referencing in a sense how the book was birthed?
2: yeah I think I am
0: so, uh, the book really began with the murder of George Floyd.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, as you know, I, I, I am very close to my children, who are all adults, I need to remind mm-hmm. myself.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and one in particular, my daughter Emma, has a profound sense of social justice. Um, it animates everything that she does. To the point where she will hold me to account even when I don't live up to, or especially when I don't live up to my aspirations. Um, she's fond of saying to me, for example, Dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. Mm-hmm. And in the summer of 2020, as the pandemic was raging and we were all kind of afraid. And Mm -hmm. Allie, my wife and I were on, were on our farm safe. Uh, Emma was out in the streets protesting Mm -hmm. and I was terrified. I was terrified of COVID. I was terrified that she would get hurt. Um, And then one night she was with a group of a couple of thousand people who were marching from Brooklyn to Manhattan across the Manhattan bridge when we started texting about her being pepper sprayed. Mm. And it was that moment that I realized that she was putting herself on the line for things that I believe in. And I know she believes in, but I was safe and comfortable in the world that I was in. And I started to look at the question of, what am I doing? What is my responsibility in a world where so many people don't feel safe, where so many people don't have that innate sense of belonging? And I, that really was the impetus for this book, was to look at the question of, What is my responsibility? What is the responsibility of folks who've incarnated in bodies like mine, white, cis, straight, male? What is my responsibility when so many people are living their lives with their backs against the wall or knees on their necks like George Floyd? Well, one of the... uh
2: meanings of the word belonging, at least the way I use it, Mm -hmm. has to do with feeling at home Mm
3: -hmm.
2: with or at home in, like our own bodies and minds or our world. And Many people would probably say they feel most at home, uh, kind of distant from their ordinary lives, you know, out in the natural world or in the garden or swimming in the ocean, uh, but don't necessarily have a strong sense of being at home with one another and a family, a community in this world, and especially in times of, of suffering or, or distress, as you're describing. And I just got an invitation to something today, some mm. online thing um, from uh, somebody who works in the uh, federal government who used to be a firefighter. And they used uh, something of what I guess is a fire person's credo, which was like, when others are running away, we're running in. Right. And that actually reminds me of you. in terms of, uh, this time, you know, that we live in and, and, well, not just this time, but the sort of in general, the the nature of discord and and anxiety and distress and how many people are willing to be on the front lines?
0: Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, here again, I think that, um, I have many teachers who have taught me what it means to be a bodhisattva.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And um I think that a bodhisattva is supposed to turn toward suffering to do what mm-hmm. they can. Mhm. And and in this particular case, you know, we're talking about the word belonging. I think it is to use your definition, an expression of being at home in one's body, at home in one's existence. Um, But that means also there's a community aspect to that, and it also means being accepted for who Mm -hmm. one
3: is. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So it's not just um, being included, if you will. It's actually... um, being proactively accepted and celebrated
3: Mm.
0: for whatever incarnation that you have, whether there's a gender fluidity about you, whether there is a, uh, identity that doesn't fit a particular normative narrative that is the dominant narrative that you're carrying. Um, I think that we all have this deep and profound longing to simply be accepted wholly and utterly. can, 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 I, can I share something with you, which is, uh, it is this is This is a quote I'm going to read from Frederick Um, And I think this actually speaks to it really well. He says, there lies the longing to know and be known by another fully and humanly. And that beneath that, there lies a longing closer to the heart of the matter still, which is the longing to be at long last where you fully belong. Mm. And I think that's what I was really reaching for with this notion of the longing to belong
2: and that begins you know, your book right that's
0: that's the beginning that's right of your book. yeah that's right that's right the, the you know when we look at the world um, we see so many instances of people lacking exactly what Beekner is writing about mhm and that's the form of suffering that like your firefighter friend, I feel mm-hmm. like I was called to go towards.
2: Mm-hmm. I should say, you know, uh, that going towards suffering doesn't mean like doom scrolling, you know, and like <laughs> no. being massively yeah. undone by, you know, just right. endlessly consuming, mm-hmm. uh, not news, because it's not news after a while, it's the same story, you know, just right, uh, and never taking care of yourself. It can't mean that, you know, So Right. And we'll get right. to that, I'm sure, a little yeah. later. But something, um, a couple of things about what, what you just said. So for many people, the path to a sense of belonging begins in a life that maybe didn't have a lot of belonging, you know, when they were younger. And so here's a question for you. Is belonging something we can cultivate? And do you consider it a skill in that sense?
0: Yes. It is something that we can cultivate. And um, it um, I guess it's a skill. And and you know, in a sense, if you think about, you know, the, the title of the book is reunion. So what is it that we are being called to reunite
3: with? Mm-hmm.
0: And first and foremost, I talk about reuniting with the reality of our ancestors. Um, what was their experience like? In what ways might they have experienced this other term, which John A. Powell from, from Berkeley
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, spoke about, which is othering. In what ways have they experienced othering? And more important, in what ways might they have been complicit in the othering of others, of making them mm-hmm. less than, and so reuniting with that. But equally important is reuniting and remembering the parts of ourselves that we have dismembered, mm-hmm. the parts of ourselves that, that um, we don't really want to acknowledge. And I think in this way, that, that is a foundational skill to creating that sense of belonging or helping to foster that sense of belonging mm-hmm. for all the others.
2: So in a way, it's uh, an emergent quality of wisdom or understanding. It reminds me of um, this is a misquote of Maya Angelou, but it's it's sort of the
3: popularized
2: version of something she said, uh, which is basically when you know better, you do better. When you see better, you do better.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and it's because of our more or less distortion of perception of of not understanding quite. And mm-hmm. so, in the Buddhist framework, belonging in that sense, would relate very much to the notion of interconnection, that everyone and everything right. is somehow connected to one another, but because of our upbringing or our conditioning, that can be a very, very foreign idea.
0: Yeah, I, and, and, and I use, in, in the book, I use the metaphor of fingers on a hand mm-hmm. to help describe the relationship between difference and interbeingness and interconnectedness. Um, because I think we struggle with that. We struggle. Uh, we, 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 see our, we see only the difference or we see a false sameness between the mm-hmm. experiences. And I like this image of, of fingers on the hand being separate expressions of the same hand and that mm-hmm. working together, they, they create something that is larger than the individual but the individual stays an individual index finger, if you will.
2: I'm thinking about uh, something that is so core to your work, which is leadership,
3: Mm.
2: because in in some ways, um, leadership also involves having or being a model, right, of of belonging and acceptance, because otherwise uh, it's beyond our imagination for some of us until we encounter it and and suddenly we are enfolded within or or we're inspired by somebody.
0: Yeah, I I, I think if you also bring in the concept of power,
3: Mm -hmm. um,
0: especially power that is projected onto individuals by way of their body Mm -hmm. or by way of their position or manifestation of some idealized version right it's the way you know my former mother-in-law used to turn to me and and ask me questions because you know i was a successful businessman so i must know something right? <laughs> it's um but the, the when we think about that it, in the in in the context here it's like we have the, the responsibility to model creating the conditions for belonging just as we have the responsibility to do our own internal work mm-hmm. to, to whether it means remembering the dismembered parts of ourselves or it means working with the hungers that exist inside of ourselves so that we don't spread toxicity around us. Mm-hmm these feel like the responsibilities of power. Um, And if we want to call it responsibilities of leadership, I'm okay Mm
3: -hmm,
2: mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. with
0: exchanging those words.
2: Well, here's a quotation from your book, your most recent book. Mm -hmm. Leadership is only leadership when it is for those whose necks are under knees and whose backs are against the wall. The poor, Mm -hmm. the dispossessed, the disinherited. Task of lifting those struck down, of making visible those who have been erased, of touching the untouchable and breaking down the castes that separate and cause so much death is the most important leadership quest of modern life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's... Um... It's an expanded definition of leadership, isn't it?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It uh, it goes beyond, especially from a business leadership perspective. It goes beyond this notion of the accumulation of wealth or the generation of wealth for shareholders. It goes beyond infinite growth as an objective. Mm-hmm. And it moves into this notion of what is our responsibility? You know, what did Peter Parker's uncle, Spider-Man's uncle say to him? I don't know. (laughs) He said, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh And responsibility for what? Responsibility for my fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, why do we incarnate into the bodies that we do? Why do we walk around with power and privilege if not to make use of that to lift knees off necks? If not to make it safe for, you know, a Palestinian American to wear a keffiyeh Mm -hmm. or for a Jew in the United States to wear a yarmulke? Mhm. What is the purpose of me manifesting in a body that holds power if not for me to be as my daughter would say a co-conspirator for belonging.
3: Mhm.
2: Well, you know, I'm thinking about it actually the two things that came to my mind in terms of kind of day-to-day life. One was a friend is a friend of mine who um used to work for uh, the federal government managing a department. Mm. And uh, she always said that the goal she had was that everyone in her department flourish. Mm. And if she right. did that, the mission would be taken care of. That's right. You know, and, and that was such an interesting concept of leadership and new for me to, to ponder. And the other thing that I've been thinking of just in these last few minutes is some of my teachers who were very humble. It's like, you wouldn't, if you mm-hmm. think of leadership or power as something um, a little strident, you know, or mm-hmm. uh, muscular, they weren't like that. Mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, uh, they were very uh, quiet and sweet, maternal. Uh, um, and just the strongest forces of inspiration I'd met, you know, and partly that became that became clear to me was because of the way they let everyone, they helped everyone feel that they belonged. Like here you oh. were doing this endeavor, you were working on uh, mindfulness and other qualities and, you know, toward an end of being free. And it was never sort of like, oh, I think a little remedial work would be better for you, you know, or like...
0: Right. Right. Try
2: again next right. lifetime. It just wasn't like that.
0: Right, right. It, you know, if, if we can alter the framing of what leadership is supposed to be, if we can alter the framing of what power, the right use of power mm-hmm. should be, and start to include that sense of belonging, of fostering that systemic belonging, Mm-hmm. Or fostering what Martin Luther King Jr. would call would have called beloved community, mm-hmm. then maybe, just maybe, we can deal with, you know, things like the gun violence that is so pre- prevalent. And 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 I know Sharon, how much this this that work means to you.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, when we look at who pays the price for our inability to foster a sense of belonging in our society, among the many are children, Mm -hmm. babies. Babies. I mean, what worse expression of systemic othering is there than children being shot in the streets? What? How far from what we see ourselves as, as a species, have we come when we allow children, grandmothers, you know, churchgoers
3: mm-hmm. from
0: Taiwan to be shot? It's... Um, it feels imperative to me that we do this work.
2: Well, so many ways, you know, we've never uh, been taught, many of us, you know, that mm. power over is not the point, you know, and it's mm-hmm. not. Um, and for some people, you know, just in their ordinary lives, it's like their turf might be kind of small, but it's what they've got. And they feel so powerless in some deep way anyway. And uh, so
0: mastering that, you know, and letting everyone yeah. else know is, sort of becomes the point of their lives. Well, I, I think you hit upon something really important there. I think that, you know, when, when I embarked on doing this book, the first book I did was a, a kind of retrospective this is what happened to me in my journey to becoming who I am today, and here's what might be taken from that. This book was different. This book was, I need to do some work here. Mm -hmm. I need to understand my own relationship to these sorts of issues. And in doing that, one of the things I encountered was um, how tenuous my hold on my own sense of belonging
3: is, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: or even more, I encountered my own, and I postulate a theory that part of the reason it's so difficult to make progress on these issues on a systemic basis is that in looking at the experience of, say, my European immigrant ancestors, Mm -hmm. they, they came to the United States with a very ambivalent state and status of who they were. Were they white? Were they not white? Were mm-hmm. they accepted? Were they going to be accepted? And that once they became accepted, it was almost like they would be damned before they let it go. Mm-hmm. It was so scary. And so like your um, assertion about power, it's so frightening that the notion of giving up something mm-hmm. that you've come to rely upon and love is so frightening. That you hold on to it and you disconnect yourself from empathy, from compassion,
3: mm-hmm.
0: which I think is one of the root problems that we're dealing with.
2: We use the term toxic leadership in the in the book. Does that is that what it refers to? Is that kind
0: of lack of compassion? I think that's one of the expressions of it. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, the toxicity, you know, to, to 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 give some context to it, I would argue that those who hold power, who haven't done their own internal work to really understand and grapple with their belief systems or, if you want, the demons that we carry, spread a kind of toxicity throughout the organization. And so there's a responsibility for those who are in the most powerful positions within an organization, within a community, within a country, to do their work first, to do their work in deep and profound ways. Because if not, their unfinished work, their internal demons, if you will, are set loose on everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so we, we end up asking our organizations or our community members... To in effect do our work for us. A simplest way to understand this, if if, you know, we have a few examples of a kind of narcissism in political leadership. Mm -hmm. And the narcissist at base is a kind of empty, hungry ghost, to use our
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Buddhist language. And rather than doing their own internal work to grow past that they constantly feed on the insecurities and the aspirations of the of the people so that they can feel better and of course like every hungry ghost they're never going to feel better cuz they're never mm-hmm. satisfied it's endless and so that's that's the kind of toxicity i'm talking about and it'll manifest in aggressions and unconscious biases it'll manifest in all sorts of ways, whether they're microaggressions or macroaggressions. But at its root, it's that hungry ghost inability to actually heal their own internal wounds, and the rest of us pay a price.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, I've often said um, that in some ways in our current time, I feel like we live in a culture of... Uh, demeaning others, you know, and, and a sort of power to be found, seemingly power to be found in that. And, you know, I think it might've just increased and increased and increased until we find ourselves in what is now a current climate of, of tremendous hatred, you know, and discord and polarization that is really, it's really so prevalent. It's like, uh, I'm sure, you know, if I were, uh, from another background, I probably would perhaps, you know, feel like maybe this is no different than it has always been. But or even looking at my ancestors, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: or, or the Holocaust survivors amongst them. And um,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, but there's something about even just speaking to one another that uh in more in a more general way, not with such shocking actions, you know, but in a more general way that I think is it's just uh, so off and so misleading in terms of where happiness, or fulfillment, or a sense of empowerment is actually
0: to be found. Where happiness, empowerment, or even alleviation of their own internal suffering. Yeah. Right. And and I, I agree with you. You know, we're here in the middle of November, twenty twenty-three, and the world yet again feels like it's burning
3: mm-hmm. with
0: hatred. Right. It's again, and it it is both shockingly new and deeply familiar Mm -hmm. Um, all at the same time. And whether we're talking about a conflict in the Middle East or a conflict in Africa or a conflict in Asia or or on the streets of the United States,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: what we see is this dehumanizing language where human beings, whether on the southern border of the United States or in a mall somewhere, are referred to as vile mm-hmm. animals, um, uh, a threatening horde. Um, it calls into question the, 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 the language we use, um, and, and I'll insert something I'm struggling with right now, which is there is this debate that, that is particularly pronounced right now around what is referred to as free speech, mm-hmm. which is a political assertion most commonly understood as part of the United States Constitution, right? The government cannot censor your speech. And for me, what I'm grappling with is we seem to have lost what the Buddhists would say is right speech, which is speech that does not engender hatred, speech that engenders a sense of belonging, speech that is grounded in truth but is committed to not doing harm. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like we're so wrapped up in free speech that we lose sight of right speech. Am I seeing that correctly?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting. You know, I mean, it's part of the way we accept or reject um, constraints as being uh, inhibitions or mm-hmm. just structure that help us go deeper. You know,
0: right. Right. Things
2: like that, you know, um, and it's also it's interesting. I'm pondering like the different kinds of conditioning we might have. Um, you know, there are those people who hear a group of people, not their own ethnicity, let's say, or mm-hmm. race, referred to as animals, and they feel superior. Like I'm not like that, you know. I'm right. I'm educated. I'm whatever. And then there are the people like me who think, oh yeah, my people used to be called that too.
0: You know, like right. Right. Is that what they think of me as well you know or my next right right and 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 that's that's the danger of dehumanizing language
2: yeah you know
0: it um because i I think and this you know I'm optimistic i'm I'm hopeful and I choose to be hopeful but um i I think that when we uh Lean into what is really going on in that dehumanizing language. What the the part of what's going on, I think, is we're trying to separate ourselves from that other person
3: Mm -hmm.
0: because they are, I perceive them as a threat. Almost Mm -hmm. all the dehumanizing language has within it uh, an implicit threat, right? There are hordes at the southern border of the United States. There are, you know, uh, uh, we even use political terminology to describe someone. um, You know, this person is a terrorist and that person is a freedom fighter. And we're splitting into good and bad. Whereas what we're losing sight of in that moment is the activities. Mm -hmm. What's actually happening. Um, And that's, that's what I find most troubling and most against what I would, I would understand as right speech.
2: Well, if you're, you know, using, if you're using a word like animals to describe people, it's a right. permission structure, right? Right. Because, or, and not, that, not that animals should be mistreated, but, you know, an example I've often used is like if you kick a table and you realize you're kicking a table, that's one problem. If you kick a person and you feel like you're kicking a table, that's a bigger problem
0: that's right, that's right yeah. that's a good that's a good metaphor, yeah. yeah
2: so maybe we should go over the principles of right speech and see if it's even feasible in society, like being truthful
3: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Being it together,
2: yeah. being truthful, I mean, one thing the Buddha said was, say that which is true and that which is useful, yeah, you know to say that which is true. Uh, and just hurtful, you know, makes no sense because uh, the underlying motivation is considered, you know, based on compassion. So <clears throat> you want to see people rehabilitated, not cast off. For example,
0: or made made less than human, yeah, even with language like human. savages and brutes. You know, yeah, what we what because this is all language that has. Uh, separated us and you know i think you made an important connection with even right intention what is your intention right is my Mm -hmm. intention to speak in a way that is to make you feel bad is it to make myself feel bad by making you feel bad is it to make you feel afraid because i've been afraid Mm -hmm. Is it to make you suffer because I've been suffering? What is the purpose of that speech Mm -hmm. versus um, when we stand back from a world that feels like it's on fire, torn apart by hatred? What is our responsibility to cool that flame? What is our responsibility to dampen the hatred rather than make the hatred worse? And... I don't hear, by the way, uh, you know, right excuse in the words, right speech. I don't hear people being absolved of responsibility Mm -hmm. for actions that cause harm.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: But I do hear a sort of guidance and admonition to those who would endeavor to create more harmony in the world.
2: I think if you really look at some of the principles of right speech, even though they, they can seem somewhat, I mean, nowadays it would be called right speech. It's more modern communications, you know, understanding, but maybe reflect- Or maybe
0: uh, nonviolent communications. To, yeah, to it's like Marshall nonviolent Rosenberg. communication. Right.
2: Yeah, you know, and it's it's a lot of the same principles as, as mm. what the Buddha was talking about with right speech. And even if you use things like use eye language, you know, and as opposed mm. to... U language. It sounds so cliched, and uh, but I've seen it work in in that people sometimes come down to, first of all, admitting their vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, talking about what they feel instead of just masking it with ideology. Which you know, I, as friends, have been talking about this. You know, like right. the way we can avoid the very difficult feelings that many of us might have, you know, in a time of conflict or, or uncertainty and, uh, and just mask it with a
0: certainty of knowing it all. And, and or a certainty of knowing it all, a certainty of shutting it down. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, you know, many of my clients are CEOs and business mm-hmm. leaders. And the other day I was talking to the global head of HR, human mm-hmm. resources, which I think is a funny term, but, okay, human resources at a very large software company, tens of thousands of employees. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the current state of affairs, and there's an internal communication tool called Slack. Many people Mm -hmm. listening Mm -hmm. will know it. And she said, Jerry, things have gotten so bad that staff people have had to moderate the content on Slack channels because people are attacking each other. Mm -hmm. And so the impulse, which I understand, the impulse is to shut it all down, Mm -hmm. shut it down. The problem, I think, though, psychologically, is that you're not going to stop the feelings. Mm -hmm. You're going to drive it underground. Mm -hmm. And so what we're struggling with right now, I think, is how do we create forms of civil conversation so that people can share I'm hurting. Okay. I feel the consequences of intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. flowing through my body right now because there might be a war going on or there might be attacks going on or because some group of people have been identified and, and, and singled out for violence. Mm-hmm. And, and we lack... Language, we lack forms for how do we deal with that suffering Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't become more violence.
2: When you say you think of your ancestors, the Italians, is that it?
0: (laughs) So uh, I identified as a boy, I identified with my Italian ancestors, my Mm -hmm mother's parents, and, as it turned out, my father's adopted parents mm-hmm. see in my family growing up part of what helped helped make me feel disconnected in my body was that there were things that were not talked about mm-hmm. in the family.
2: talk about right speech just yes.
0: right let's, hi- exactly. let's hide that <laughs> let's hide these facts and and while it was discussed and it was known that my father was adopted. It wasn't, um, the consequences of how he felt mm-hmm. were never discussed. And so one way to understand this was, and, and the consequences of this is the way my father found out that he was adopted. Mm-hmm. And so this happened uh, on his wedding day. His mother Stood at the back of the church and she hated my mother. And she stood at the back of the church screaming at my mother, calling her awful names. And then finally said to my father, You're not my son. You were adopted. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, everything he knew about who he belonged to was shattered. Mm-hmm. Eventually, um, he heard more of the story, and we heard rumors of names of who and what. And then after he passed, one of my siblings, my oldest brother, Vito, found the birth records of my father, the adoption records of my father from New York Foundling Hospital. And it turned out that his mother was an Irish immigrant who was 20 years old. And... This was the part that really hurt me or that I felt sad about. He was adopted at 18 months old. Mm -hmm. Now, that's long enough to have bonded with Mm -hmm. his birth mother. It's long Mm -hmm. enough for him to have internalized, in some ways, his first name, which Mm -hmm. was William Michael Heffernan. And so I, in part of my own reunion journey, I went back into that relationship. What was it like for my mm-hmm. father to grow up and grow into adulthood, not really knowing to whom he belonged? Mm-hmm. And how did that impact me? The, the plot line ends, if you will, with me traveling to Ireland to visit the gravesite of my father's biological mother. Mm-hmm so that I could complete a circle, if you will. And it's, uh, it was a very, very powerful moment for me because, in a sense, I remembered one of my ancestors who was dismembered from my family tree mm. so that I could go to the land, one of the lands where my ancestors come from,
2: it's an amazing story. And we can actually talk about the
0: role stories play
2: in all of this and, and why they're important.
0: Yeah. I think stories and storytelling is an art that is lost. And it's it's one of the ways that we make sense of the world, right? I mean, the Buddha taught in parables, Jesus mm-hmm. taught in parables. You know, all of our great wisdom teachers use stories to help us make sense of the world. And, you know, call me crazy, but the world needs a lot of making sense right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we can turn to our stories, the stories that are true, the myths that we've created, and to really understand the truth behind the stories Mm -hmm. so that we can get a better sense to get a better fix, if you will, on the position that we're in.
2: Well, I know that you have a few prompts that you use to help people find their stories. Can you share those?
0: Sure. Um, one of them that I think is really important is what are the myths that your family told about their story, the, the resilience, say, of your ancestors? Many of those... Um, uh, really shape how we see the world. And of course, having shared that story about the, um, the birth story of my father, what are the stories that are kind of left blank?
3: Mm-hmm. What
0: are the things that are not said in your family? They're known, but not discussed. You know, one of my uh, colleagues, I had three close friends and colleagues write, essays for the book uh, and they appear in the afterward and one of the essays was written by uh, uh, a colleague named Virginia Bauman. Virginia is a brilliant, beautiful coach and she asks about her own ancestors what happened to the queer folk on her family tree because they don't talk about them mm-hmm. and we know that those folks existed in mm-hmm. our family tree. So, who are the people who have been lost from your family tree, mm-hmm. and who needs to be remembered so that they can be brought forth? You know, uh,
2: did you ever see the the animated movie Encanto?
0: Yes, Bruno. Yes,
2: Bruno. <laughs> Just thinking, you know, no one could figure out why is that song so popular? Like
0: right. well, all these kids are like singing right. it. Right. Well, we stop. Should, it's we like should, the number one song. The, right. But we should say the line. It's like we don't talk about Bruno. Yeah, we don't talk about Bruno's name of the song. That's the heartbreaking piece of it. And because the truth is we all have Brunos in our closet. Or yeah. as in the case of the movie haunting and hiding the house yeah right who has been dismembered from the family tree who has been lost in time you know i tell the story in in reunion of a of a man coming to me he was at one of our boot camps and he's talking about really trying to understand his sense of guilt and he comes up to me and he says um I think I'm beginning to understand this pervasive sense of guilt. And he tells the story of his great-grandfather who had enslaved a woman Mm. and raped her. And the children who came forth were the issue of this violence. And I... Stopped and I said, What was her name? And he said, I don't know. My father doesn't know. I said, I didn't ask you what your father knows.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: What was her name? And my point was that that ancestor needs to go from being Bruno, unnamed, mm-hmm. unrecognized, into becoming an ancestor.
3: Mm-hmm
0: by being remembered, by the truth of her experience, being remembered. How many of us have ancestors who are lost in time? How many of us have secrets? You know, my biological grandmother went to her grave. She had another son. Mm. My father had a half-brother. He never knew that my father had existed. Mm. Yeah. My father was Bruno. Uh,
3: right.
2: Hence the number one song in the entire country. <laughs> look at that.
0: <laughs> well, your your good friend, Lin-Manuel. Right.
2: I've never
0: met, by the way. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, he's your friend. Right.
2: He is my friend. Mm. Hamilton was an important milestone for me. Mm. Um, But it just struck me that that song, you know, how weirdly popular it was and probably why, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Here it is. So I'm wondering what you would say. I mean, this is a reductionistic question because this couldn't possibly be one thing only, but what propels a journey toward reunion? is it longing is it suffering i mean it can't be being overwhelmed by suffering which is what we started to talk about before because when you're overwhelmed you're exhausted you know you don't have the energy to to look for transformation i mean we come closer to it and hopefully face it and develop mm. a different relationship with it but not be overcome by it because then we're just there Um, But there's something, and and longing, I think, has something to do with it.
0: Well, I think think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, I purposefully didn't speak about longing to belong as something that other people have that we ourselves don't have. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we recognize that we all have that so that we can foster that sense of empathy.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So the reunion process in a sense is a way to not only respond to the longing to belong of others but also our own internal longing but i will add it's also an extension of something that i think is vitally important you know you know me i'm i'm fond of little quippy little ways of mm-hmm. of understanding things and one of the things that animates so much of the work I do is a simple little construct that better humans make better leaders. Mm -hmm. And it's obvious, but it's also very difficult (laughs) to achieve. And I am expanding that definition of better human to be more inclusive in just the way that you read that quote On leadership, Mm -hmm. being a better human isn't merely about alleviating your own suffering. It's about alleviating the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. Because when I work towards the alleviation of suffering of others, I alleviate my suffering. And when I work towards the alleviation of suffering in myself, mindful of the suffering of others, I might actually have a shot at doing something to make life easier for them as well. So it's that sort of twin impulse of responding to my own longing while simultaneously trying to do this work of being a better human being.
3: Mm.
2: Nice. So it's a vision also. Yeah,
0: it's a vision. It's a vision as well. of
2: possibility. That's right. hope, as you said earlier. Yeah, I look, I
0: I, I think, you know. We could turn to nihilism.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We could turn to hopelessness. Um, we could go inward. We could build gated communities around each of our individual souls. Um, but that's not the life I want to live. Mm-hmm. That's that's not the vow I made. But it's not the life I want to live, and it's not. It would turn me into someone that I would not be proud to be. Mm -hmm. And I want my descendants to look at me and go, damn, he was a good man. Mm -hmm. He may have failed, but he tried.
2: Nice. Very nice. Well, I'm afraid our time is coming to a close, but... Uh, we'll continue on with texting each other.
0: Uh, <laughs> we will indeed. We will
2: in some way. But um, I know uh, how important poetry is for mm-hmm. you, and I'm wondering if you could bring this time to a close with some poetry.
0: Well, I would love to. It would be an honor. And I'm going to read something from... A, f- a friend of both of us or someone I've admired from afar and someone that you actually knew quite closely. And that is the magical, um, late bell hooks. Mm. And this is a poem I discovered when I was in the middle of writing reunion. And, uh, and when you hear it, I think you'll understand what it is that, uh, why I I chose to use this poem both in the book and would bring it forth now. And in the poem, she says, when angels speak of love, they tell us all is union and reunion. When angels speak of love, they tell us all is union and reunion dying, reborn again, there is no separation, no end to paradise. There is no separation, no end to paradise. We are always present, the ecstatic moving us along each current, each wilderness of spirit, a dedicated path. God bless Bell Hooks.
2: Really, how very beautiful and
0: uh, full of hope, truly. It is full of hope. And I think that that's the most important thing that I wanted to leave uh, with this book is I actually am hopeful. Mm-hmm. I think in a sense, following Bell Hooks' advice, if we just let the angels speak of love, if we just listen to the angels speaking of love, then all is reunion and reunion. Mm. And I can't think of a better prescription for our time than letting angels speak of love. Because mm. that's what we need.
2: You know, I can't either. So thank you so much. And thank you for being here today. And congratulations again on the new book. It's available in all the places books are sold in hardcover, ebook. And audiobook formats.
0: Thank you for having me, Sharon. And thank you for all the work you've done. And, you know, to be your student for all these years, I mean, I feel like the best way I can pay you back for all that you have given the world is to make a positive dent in the world and to try to do something about the suffering.
2: It's so beautiful. See, now I'm going to cry again. You're
3: so well. <laughs> <laughs> Lily,
1: come save us. <laughs> hey, folks! Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Jerry's work, you can visit the website reboot.io. That's r e b o o t. I-O. And definitely get yourself a copy of his new book, Reunion, wherever books are sold. For all things Sharon, including a free guided meditation, you can visit SharonSalsberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast on the Be Here Now network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy and may you live with ease.